You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. All right, good morning, Branches Church. How are we all doing today? Awesome. Happy New Year. My name is Austin. I'm on the teaching team here at Branches, and it is a joy to be with you. We are on day two of our New Year's resolutions. How are we doing? We sticking to them? You know, there's this expression that many of you have probably heard. Every time you say yes to something, you say no to something else. So if you decided you wanted to eat healthy this New Year, maybe you're saying no to cookies, so you can say yes to abs. Maybe you want to read more books, so you're saying yes to reading and no to binge-watching your favorite show like Yellowstone or whatever you might be watching right now. Every time you say yes to something, you say no to something else. And saying yes to owning a smartphone is not exempt from this expression. Pew Research Center discovered in 2021 that 85% of Americans own a smartphone. That's a good thing. There's a lot of cool things that come with the smartphone. You get the internet, maps, games, high quality camera, and you're never bored. There's always something to do when you have your smartphone with you. You see, when you say yes to having a smartphone, you say yes to a lot of good things, but there's one big thing that you often say no to, being present. That's probably the biggest thing that you say no to with being an owner of a smartphone. Unless you're super disciplined and have your phone on do not disturb all the time, smartphone users often say no to being present. Like, let me give you a couple circumstances. You're at the grocery store. You're one person behind the person who's checking out. You pull out your smartphone. You go to the gas station, your car is getting gas, smartphone. You are at a restaurant, your friend gets up to use the restroom. How many seconds is it till you pull out your phone? Or maybe you're watching a TV show or a movie with your friend or a spouse. Starts to get kind of boring. Or you're at your kid's sports game and it gets a little anticlimactic. Yes, you pull out your cell phone. You see, I admire Pastor Andrew Shea for a handful of reasons. The dude can build like Noah, he has an immaculate beard, and he bought a dumb phone so he could be more present with his friends and family. He said no to being a smartphone owner after having had one for many years so he could say yes to being present. And of course, there's downsides. His phone's like always dead. I think his voicemail box holds like three voicemails, so you can't leave him one, and he has to text with T9, but he says yes to being present. This decision has benefited his friends and family because he's all the more present with them. And with our text today, we're going to read about Jesus giving up his freedom, laying down his rights, and doing this menial thing of paying the temple tax. That which wasn't necessarily required of him, yet he did it for the benefit of others. 
just like Andrew, laying down his rights for a smartphone for the sake of being present with his friends and family. Let's jump into today's text. It's only three verses. It's going to be Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. If you want to flip there, the words will also be on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, it's very interesting that Matthew chapter 17 ends on this note. Matthew chapter 17 begins with the transfiguration. This insane story of Jesus going to the mountaintop with his three closest disciples his clothes become dazzling white, his face shining like the sun. Moses and Elijah appear. God speaks from a cloud. This is my beloved son with whom I love. Listen to him. And then the next scene, we have Jesus cast a demon out of a boy, the boy who the uh, disciples were unable to heal. Jesus cast the demon out of the boy. And now we get to this story, and it's like, let's talk about taxes. Like, what's going on here? Why did the gospel writer, Matthew, decide to take this into account? One person may initially read this story and look at the text as Jesus being roasted by the religious and Jesus blowing their expectations out of the water. Like, oh, you think I don't pay the temple tax? How about I pay your temple tax through the mouth of a fish? Like, okay, Jesus, that's a nice flex. But that's not what is going on here. Let's break it down. Let's start with the accusal of Jesus. They, he and his disciples, they go to the town of Capernaum, and the temple tax collectors go over to Peter to inquire about his rabbi. And maybe they went to Peter because they knew they would get a very quick, abrupt answer. They get a very honest answer. They knew Peter's personality, and so they go to him. Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And this question coming from the collector, it suggests that Jesus doesn't often fit within the social norm. He doesn't often fit within social expectations. And so they kind of do a dig at Jesus. Like, is he going to be living up to the Jewish expectations? However, commentaries discuss that while faithful Jewish men would pay this obligation, the priests and the rabbis, they would be exempt from paying the temple tax. So essentially, they're challenging the authority of Jesus in this instance. While he is a rabbi, they're implying that he is beneath his title. So what are they trying to get at? Considering Jesus does end up paying the temple tax, we see Jesus is ridiculed. 
he is inaccurately accused, and he stands tall over their accusal. But I don't think that's the point of what this text is all about. Rather, we are to see how contentious this temple tax is. Not that the payment was extravagant. It was just two days' wages. Rather, what the payment came to represent, that being the support of a religiously corrupt institution, this defiled temple, that which Jesus would later flip the tables within, asking, what are you doing in my father's house? You see, this payment began to take on a symbolic meaning, this allegiance to corrupt rulers. However, all the while, Jesus still pays the temple tax. Yes, he does, is what Peter replies. And whether that was a quick answer from his nerves or this defensiveness, Peter answers the question correctly. We see next scene, Jesus talks with Peter in the house. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their children or from others? And this expression, kings of the earth, it would have been known as a reference to Rome, knowing that the last 150 years, the Romans wouldn't have to pay the taxes because of the spoils of war and because they would charge their client nations, that being the Jews. So Peter could have heard this expression and been like, mm-hmm, must be nice. Because it was common knowledge that the Romans didn't tax each other. Rather, they would tax others. But we see Jesus, he takes it a step further because he says, but so that we may not cause offense, we're going to pay it. What's Jesus saying here? Is he saying he's exempt because he's of the sons of the earth? Peter might have been very confused at this moment. What is Jesus getting at? You see, Jesus says the children are exempt. So the children of Rome, they're exempt to pay the taxes to the government. And Jesus, him being the son of God, he's exempt from paying taxes for his father's house. So when Jesus is saying that he is exempt it is because he is not liable as a son of the father. The father does not require the son to pay for his house. You see, Jesus wasn't required to pay the temple tax. He was the true temple. Being God himself, he was the supreme abode of God. And not only that, he was the perfect high priest. And not only that. He was to be the perfect sacrifice to atone for all of our sins. All this wrapping up, the temple would only be truly completed through Jesus' work, and yet Jesus paid the temple tax. You guys are hearing me say that a lot. I'm trying to really hammer that in. Jesus paid the temple tax. Why? The key verse, but so that we may not cause offense. What? We're talking Jesus, right? Jesus didn't want to cause offense? Wasn't that like kind of characteristic of the ministry of Jesus? Isn't that how we ended up on the cross? Jesus wasn't put on the cross because he was really nice and gracious. He was put on the cross because he was offensive. But Jesus, you see, he was more than willing to point out sin. 
He was more than willing to convict the self-righteous, to point out the corruption and the religious leaders. So why is he telling Peter to pay it so that he would not cause offense? It's because Jesus was driven by a greater mission, to straighten the crooked ways of his generation. Rather than calling out a menial thing like paying the temple tax, Jesus was looking to break down barriers between humanity and God, to reconcile all people to his Father and the kingdom forever. You see, this could be an evangelistic opportunity for Peter to minister to the tax collectors. As we see here that Jesus pays the temple tax as an opportunity to share an ultimate character quality of the kingdom, humility, humility, this quality that wraps the entire personhood of Jesus. For in humility, Jesus would touch a leper, though it would make him impure. Jesus would step foot in the house of a Gentile, though he would become ceremonially unclean. He would wash the feet of his disciples, that which was to be a servant's task. He, an esteemed rabbi, would seep to that level. Jesus would gain the reputation as friend of tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, those who would be considered the scum of the earth by the Gentile people. And why? Because Jesus operated out of love and humility always. Even when he didn't have to, Jesus chose to, even in the most menial sense of paying the temple tax. You see, Jesus would always go above and beyond to build bridges, revealing the heart posture for every follower of Jesus, that our freedoms that we have, they must be carried out in a way that has an evangelistic mindset first and foremost. That being, how can we do this or that for the kingdom? the things we do, the things we say? How can we have the kingdom break in through our actions? You see, what we do must always be seen through kingdom lens. The evangelistic mindset being a second layer to all that we say and do. Similarly to buying a Christmas gift for your spouse. You see, when you get a gift for your spouse, it's kind of for you too. Like when you get it for a person you're dating, you know, you kind of get them whatever's on your list. But when you're married and when you're living with them, you're looking at the list like what will make them happy and what can also benefit me, right? Can someone agree with me? Do I sound terrible right now? All right, cool. <laughs> like for instance, uh, my wife, Kara, she wanted to get a new nonstick pan. So I bought that for her and her dojo is the kitchen. She is samurai chef, like absolutely killing it. She's been loving her new pan and I've been loving the benefit of her new pan, eating all the food that she's been making. Kara got me a new button down. I look nice for date night. I have a shirt that I get to preach in. It's a win-win. Uh, I bought Kara a Kindle. This was the biggest one because, as I mentioned, literally every time I preach, reading is my favorite thing to do. She's reading all the more. That means I get to read even more. This is a win-win. This is a big win for me. You see, there's this second layer. And similarly, with the ministry of Jesus, it had this win-win method. People would be served, and the kingdom would break in. And through his kingdom breaking in, 
people would be ultimately fulfilled. It was never just one layer, but a two-layer process. And this is how we are to operate with all that we do. This two-layer mentality, this two-layer process of evangelistic mentality. And how do we do that? Jesus' priorities must become our priorities if we want our actions to reflect Jesus. Jesus' priorities must become our priorities if we want our actions to reflect Jesus. So we see in this text that Jesus refrains from exercising his rights as the Son of God to avoid any obstacles of sharing the good news with the people. And this is the way how the Apostle Paul puts this concept. Out of 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, how he puts it is absolute money. And I'm not talking like temple tax money. I'm talking kingdom currency, baby. Like this is so good. This is out of 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. Paul says this. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. What is Paul saying here? Paul is not saying that he will compromise his beliefs to share the gospel. Rather, he will lay down all of his rights. He will become all things for all people so that he might save some. How good is that? This is the heart of Christ. If paying the temple tax means that he is going to be able to save some, he will do it. He will lay down his rights, not only as a rabbi who doesn't need to pay the tax, but as a son of God who surely does not need to pay for his father's house. So this all begs the question, are we committed enough to sharing the gospel that we would voluntarily give up our rights to do so? Do we care enough for the lost that we would be willing to sacrifice our privileges, whatever they might be, so Jesus can work through us? You see, our freedoms must be carried out with an evangelistic mindset first and foremost, as Jesus' priorities must become our priorities if we want our actions to reflect Jesus and to have his kingdom break through our lives. The last text we have today seems like it ends on kind of a funny note. Go to the lake <clears throat> and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. And to a modern-day reader, this might sound kind of random, like something like out of Narnia or something. But to an ancient Jewish reader, this would be like kind of common in Jewish stories, a coin or a gem being found in the mouth of a fish. So Peter hears this, and he's like, all right, I get to be a part of one of those stories. And we see it first begin with Jesus telling Peter, 
I need you to go out to the lake and throw out your line. Which, unless you're a fisherman, that might not sound like anything but fishing. But to a fisherman, for Peter, whose occupation was a fisherman before it was a disciple to Rabbi Jesus, he would use a net, not a line. He would want to catch a ton of fish. So he would use the most effective way. You see, with the line, you'd be able to just catch like maybe one at a time. Why would I do a least effective way? The same thing goes for modern fishing. I have a friend named Hunter. He goes to Alaska every summer. He goes on this boat to catch salmon. The goal, catch a ton of salmon. How they do it? They throw out a net. A good net will catch anywhere between 500 and 1,000 pounds of fish. That's amazing. It's a dream. I love salmon. That would be so great to have a fraction of that. But I was talking to him, and he's like, yeah, like it would be silly to throw out a line. You can maybe catch a few fish if it bites. The most effective way is always a net. So with Jesus' call to Peter, Jesus is calling Peter into a posture of humility. Humility as a fisherman. As Jesus does, as Jesus calls us into with everything he says and does, he leads him to a posture of humility. Peter, I want you to use the less effective method. Use a simple fishing line. Work counterproductive to what you are used to. And watch as you catch the most prized fish you've ever laid your eyes upon. One that would hold a four drachma coin. Essentially, Jesus is using a word picture to describe to Peter what happens when you inconvenience yourself for the kingdom. When you lay down your rights, How much more can God use you? For when we put our walls down, the king steps in. The fish Peter catches is worth more than any fish Peter has ever caught before. And so Jesus declares, take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. You see, Jesus, who did not actually owe the price, paid it nonetheless. And at the same time, with the same price, He paid it for Peter as well, being a foreshadow of his redemptive work for all men. For this is how Jesus decided to use his freedom as the son of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He he who had no price to pay paid the full price so that our account balance may be at zero forever. As the wages of sin is death, Jesus paid those wages to the last penny, to the last drachma. And this is how Jesus decided to exercise his freedom. You see, this short text that we have today, it promotes a call to spiritual maturity and discernment that many Christians often dismiss. The laying down of our rights for the sake of humility, for the sake of love, Considering what does it look like for me with my life, with the things I do to build bridges rather than burn bridges and become a lonesome island? How are we exercising our freedoms to share the gospel today? Are we inconveniencing ourselves at all for the sake of kingdom come? As we see, that is characteristic of the entire ministry of Jesus 
inconveniencing himself. He who is the king of kings, lord of lords, being born in a feeding trough, that he may become the bread of life for all of us. Inconveniencing himself, who is the almighty God, having to do menial work like carpentry, having to deal with people like the religious elite, inconveniencing himself to the point of dying for you and I. You see, this is how I want to set the trajectory for our new year. I'm going to welcome up the worship team. You guys might have New Year's resolutions. I like to keep mine kind of vague so, like, I don't slip up. Or if I do slip up, there's, like, room for grace. You ever have those, like, hard resolutions, and if you kind of mess up, you just got to throw it all out? I like to make them a little bit vague. Here's, like, kind of a vague one for us all that we can all add on to if you don't already have it as one. It would be great if you had this as one. Living lives of humility. Living lives of humility. I want that to mark our year of 2022. I want us as disciples of Jesus, us who go to Branches HB, to be laying down our rights all for the sake of love. As we see this in this text today and characteristic of the entire ministry of Jesus, going the extra mile to create bridges. Meanwhile, not compromising beliefs in the process. I always have to emphasize that. We don't compromise our beliefs in the process with building bridges. As Jesus had the ability to meet people right where they were at without faulting his holiness, we can follow in his example. May we meet people right where they are at, building bridges, not faulting our integrity, and all the while, keep an evangelistic mindset. I'm going to end with Paul's words once more. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Amen. Will you all stand with me as we go into this time of response? Jesus, we worship you because you are worthy. You are the humble king that would lay down his rights to the posture of a servant. And this is what we are all called into as well. May we take your posture of humility, Jesus. May we be those who say, think, and do things through an evangelistic mentality, that we may save some. May we inconvenience ourselves for your kingdom come. And all the while, may we be in a posture of praise and adoration to you, our King. With this time of response, Jesus, may we sing out to you because you are worthy, because you are holy, because you are God. We exalt you. Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.